Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner, the host of this programme today, and you join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on the programme today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ali Samley. Ali is the co-founder of International Luxury Lifestyle Management Group, S2, a luxury concierge service. Um, Ali, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme today. Thank you for having me, Scott. It's a real pleasure having you join us. And the whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But in light of the fact that business leaders are going through, I'm sure you'll agree, one of the greatest challenges of our time at the moment in the shape of the COVID-19 pandemic, I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent this situation has affected you and your business. Uh, Well, I think uh, it's very correct to say that every sector has been impacted uh, one way or another. Um, I would say luxury sector probably less, um, as no matter what happens in life, um, especially with our clients, um, high net worth individuals, uh, they still want to, you know, eat well, dress well, uh, drive well, if I may say. Um, It's, um, I would say the... Always with the, this type, it can be a war, it can be a pandemic, it can be a recession. Um, this type of crisis in life always um, creates different demands and different um, um, different markets. So what mm. happens is if you are um, if you are someone who has the vision, then uh, you don't break, but you actually just stand and you you just um, keep going. And thinking about um, this experience of crisis management during this time, if we call it that, is there anything that you would say that the COVID-19 situation has taught you in your leadership capacity, be that about yourself or the people that you work with? Yeah, I mean, uh, the major um, thing, I mean, what I would say, uh, diversification is a very important word because what has happened, for example, normally uh, we just, had we would uh, provide travel services or um, personal shopping services or you know different uh, luxury services to our clients. When um, something like this, something like COVID nineteen happens, uh, we simply had to adjust our services. So it became all of a sudden uh, it became more about uh, their groceries and their uh, hygienic um, supplies rather than their bags and you know, jewelry. And then what happens is like all of a sudden, everybody wanted to have the doctors to visit their home, not to their leave, uh, their home. Instead of uh, travel, uh, people start to ask for uh, private islands and private jets. So everything had to be adjusted. For example, most because the schools were closed, we had to provide lots of uh, private tutors to our clients, uh, children, or we had to uh, provide you know, butlers, housekeepers, drivers, that they had to be um, tested every month. So including our company, within our company, included all of us, every month we had to be tested in order to be in touch with our clients, in order to provide them the quality of the service uh, and the health measures. So um, as I said, like it's more about um, changing your route and just going with the um, 
flow rather than just fighting with it. So we just had to um, change what we were offering and how, because at the end of the day, we are there to facilitate their life, not only their luxury. Mm. So in a case of emergency, what you do is like you just prioritize what needs to be done rather than what has been done before. Mm. And yes, you're absolutely right. The COVID-19 situation has really forced the hand of business to diversify its offering in order to survive, essentially. Um, But also, um, if we sort of shift focus ever so slightly, um, I'd also like to talk about the concept business that yourself and your business partner, Goran Svilar, have been involved with them as well, Ali, because um, that's aimed at the retail side of things. And of course, the high streets in the UK have suffered from a reduced amount of footfall during the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown. Um, There has also been, um, of course, this move toward online shopping for quite some time now as well. And this concept business, I believe I'm right in saying, is aimed at changing the way people shop by making the bricks and mortar retail experience more of a memorable experience to entice people back onto the high streets. So what was it that sort of made you go down that route, do you think? I mean, um, as for your previous question, like retail has been, you know, during the COVID, like retail has been dead, I can say. Like we had to close our shop and um, we had to um, we had to rethink what we can we could do. Um, we've been affected really uh, harsh um, by uh, as a retail. However, um, as an entrepreneur, as a leader, what you have to do, you have to just sit down and rethink how you can change the direction, how you can just create something new out of this, you know, global change. So um, both Goran and me, because of our age or culture or personalities, we believe in retail. We believe in the personal touch. We believe in being in touch with people. So that's why we never wanted to give up on the retail and just become an online uh, store. However, what we have done for example, we decided to move our offices into the retail uh, and be present there constantly to communicate with people, also to cut our costs. And also, uh, we focused more on the online uh, sales and marketing rather than um, in retail. So what, what COVID taught us on the retail side is that we still had to be present because there are still people like me and my business partner who would like to come, see, feel, touch, smell before they purchase anything. And then maybe they go home and they purchase it online or they just simply, they don't come here and they purchase it online anyway. But what we, what we learned is that we had to uh, be more um, digital um, available to, for them to access if they don't want to come to the store. But at the same time, we decided that we still have to keep that, you know, because for us, retail is also an experience. It's not just you come and buy the product, but you Mm -hmm. come and you meet the, you know, artist or you meet the designer or you meet the owner and then you just exchange ideas. You learn something, you get inspired by it. So that's why you don't get the same inspiration online. So that's why we decided to keep both retail, but focus more on the online. 
completely understand where you're coming from from that point of view and you mentioned of course the need for leaders certainly to lead that adaptability and diversification um shifting focus to sort of leadership just a little bit more broadly now ali um what do you see as being the role of a leader when i say that word leader what does that word literally mean to you um i mean look leader is coming from leading right so to lead something or to lead someone, um, you need to um, have the vision. You need to have uh, the courage to take risks, measured risks. So when you do and to stay calm, basically, if there is a crisis, if there is a recession, if there is something major going on, you need to be calm. And not that you just, you're calm yourself, but you also have to motivate and you have to uh, inspire your employees, your team. So the leader is basically someone who will not only show the way and uh, look at out of the box the situation, but also someone who will motivate and inspire the whole team. And thinking of inspiration as part of a leader's role, as you've developed through your career, um, are there any examples of leaders out there that have maybe inspired you on your business journey? Or is there anybody that you perhaps still look up to even now? I mean, this is a very good question because for me, the biggest inspiration was actually always designers and the shops. You know, I grew up um, all around the world. I went to schools in different continents. And for me, and those times you didn't have Instagram or the internet was not as strong. So your inspiration would be going to the stores and, you know, look at the visual merchandising and the products, how the things were put together. So that was my inspiration. You can include into this music and art uh, the things that are not only um, for your vision, but also the things that touches your soul and that not also opens your um, creativity. Um, if my business partner was here today, he would probably tell you that he's inspired by people who are honest, straightforward, mm. and people who keep their words. So... Um, yeah, I think like honest people, uh, trustworthy people, and um, basically people who can you can count on are very um, inspiring people. And you, of course, um, and your business partner now have extensive backgrounds in the uh, the luxury sector. And you formed, of course, um, S2 yourselves, um, I think it was in 2014, wasn't it? Six years ago. So that's now been going for a healthy um, amount of time. Um, but if you could sort of channel that experience and maybe give some advice to an aspiring young leader who was looking to perhaps step into an a leadership role in an established company for the first time or maybe even go into business for themselves what advice would you give them to really get them on the road to success the the first thing i would say always follow your heart because whatever you believe in that's what you should be doing there will be so many people around you who will tell you oh that's impossible that's that's not possible that's a stupid idea if you get caught with those feedback, then you will never be able to move on. Goran and I, we started our first company in 2008, time of recession, to open our concierge company. Everybody around us looked at us and they said, like, you guys are crazy. Like, who's going to pay for these services to um, basically, you know, during the recession where everybody is just, uh, not everybody's uh, struggling with the finances. And, um, uh, I would say about three years ago, we were chosen by the queen, the concierge company of the decade, and we are in her book. 
So the company that everybody was telling us not to go forward with got recognition by the queen. And the second thing I would say is like, you really believe what you're doing. If you feel like you're not working, that means that you will be successful because we're very lucky to wake up every morning and just feeling like we're having a good day because we don't feel like we're working. And, um, but you just put everything you have because you work with your heart. I think that's the most important thing I would uh, say. The other thing, um, if I have to connect it with the COVID, there will always be struggles. There will always be problems and there will always be some issues. You just need to learn how to bend rather than break. And you have to be flexible with what life brings you. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed for anybody tuning into uh, this uh, podcast today. And thinking now of the future, having reflected on uh, the uh, the past um, as well here, Ali, um, we know that over the course of the next 12 months, we're going to have to adjust to a new way of living and a new way of working. But what is it that you're hoping for us to, to achieve over the course of this next year? And where do you see the business being in 12 months' time? Um there will be a lot of effort and time put into retail because we have to recover our retail side of the business and redirect it with offerings um, that are more required. So that's online uh, and digital platform, really. It's something that we haven't done properly. So this period, as I said, taught us how to be a little bit more present online and dig- on digital platform. Um, the other thing on the lifestyle management side, um, it's the business that is, you know, um, members only. So we need to build our client base and gain more clients uh, who need to um, the services, either because at the moment there are a lot of relocations during the COVID. Like people have houses all around the world and they need relocations, they need private tutors, they need. So we need to reach these people to help them with their um, uh, request, not luxury, but their uh, necessary requests. And this is our next 12 months plan pretty much certainly seems like there's plenty to get your teeth into over the course of the year the next few months Ali so I'll certainly be keeping a keen eye on how the business is coming along and in fact it would actually be my pleasure to welcome you back onto the show with us in a few months time just to see how things are getting on as well thank you Scott thank you we would like that I'd really enjoy that as well Ali and most importantly until we do hopefully speak again please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on in the world as well Thank you. You too. Have a good day yourself as well. I was speaking on today's programme to Ali Samley, co-founder of S2. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Leaders Council Chairman, Lord David Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords and enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage 
obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well.
How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. 
Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking 
the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be 
substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand 
and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. 
Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.